Hello anyone and everyone. This week on Mechanical Fail, Gabe and I explore the topic of exploring. We discuss some of the basic ways video games invite players to explore, such as filling levels with hidden secrets, or requiring certain items to be found to open up previously impassable areas. We then dive more deeply into more specific ways games execute on those ideas. It turns out that while there are some basic threads that connect the motivations behind exploration together, there's a lot of nuance that each particular game can contribute to the design philosophies behind it. We cover a lot of games in this one, so prepare yourself for a kind of rapid firing of examples and comparisons. Enjoy the episode. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think the one of the early ways that at least Nintendo um, encouraged players to explore was by hiding little things in the game that would essentially make the game easier, right? So Super Mario Brothers kind of gets players to think beyond the canvas of the game a little bit. Uh, first in that they hide blocks, you know, that you can't, so you can't see them, but if you just happen to jump in the right spot, you'll hit one. Um, right. You know, on the first level, that that's something that happens, and you get an extra life for that. So that shows you that there's stuff in this world that you might not be aware of at first, but if you kind of jump around a bit and and use the mechanics to your advantage, you might find some stuff that that's going to be beneficial to you. So the extra work is worth it, right? Um, then of course, even in the second level, and plus, you know, they do this stuff right off the bat. The first level has some secrets. Right. The second level, you know, you can jump up to the top. Of the of the level, run across mm-hmm. the entire top of the level. Use the warp pipes, and then yeah, and then you have the warp pipes at the end. So it's like, check this out. So if you basically mastery mastery of the mechanics is going to allow you to get a lot of benefit out of this game to replay it, so you can maneuver around the world a lot more quickly. So you don't have to go through all the worlds of the game if you don't want to. You can just skip back to a world that you enjoy playing or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a great way for console games specifically to reward players for exploring that arcade games really couldn't give you. Because I feel like with yeah. arcade games, exploration wasn't really a big part of it. It was kind of like, it was either drive up your high score by playing very, very well, or just get to the end because the game is so hard. Right. You just see how it ends. And you know, with console games, the, the aims were totally different. You didn't have to worry about players dumping money constantly into it they bought it and they own it so how do you get players to revisit your game a bunch and Mm -hmm. with super mario brothers i think nintendo hit on a really brilliant way which was just hey let's just hide a bunch of cool secret stuff in here and you know that'll just encourage players to keep playing keep playing and look you know basically scrub every inch of every level and try in order to try to find something yeah and you know it's interesting because i one of the things i don't like about games is one games that require you to replay the entire thing to experience you know you know five percent of the game or maybe ten percent of the game different from the previous playthrough um and it's kind of interesting because mario obviously you're probably already playing it a bunch of times because you keep dying because it's difficult and even once you beat it it's still a challenge that you want to do right um and i feel like including those secrets just adds to that replayability that and and even though it's only like a little per a little percent of the game that's different it's it's still like i don't know it feels like a big part of the engagement with the game to find those things and to find the different routes try them out 
beat the game using them. Yeah, I, I for platforming games especially, you know, replaying them is definitely part of the experience. I think part of that's driven just by the fact that you naturally kind of want to master the mechanics of it and you want to I mean speedrunning is built out of this, right? You want to Yeah move through the world as efficiently as possible because that's kind of just an inherent new challenge to yourself as a player. And I think, you know, just embedding the game with secrets on top of that just gives players even more incentive to to do that. Um, But yeah, I'm with you. Like, it's frustrating when you have to replay, you know, an entire game, especially one of any considerable length, just to, like, do one thing different, right? Uh, you know, as much as I love the Persona games, one of the things that frustrates me about that, at least with the new one, is if you want to have romantic relationships with multiple characters, you can do that in one playthrough, but it's not necessarily going to be beneficial to you. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of requires you to play the game multiple times or at least, you know, do some saving backup and then play through after a certain point several times and it's a long game and uh, it uh, you know it's not necessarily worth it just to see a little cutscene that you didn't see in another playthrough necessarily right i mean that's yeah that's basically how i feel about it um yeah i just like that because i hadn't thought about how arcade games lend themselves so naturally to that yeah i mean the whole idea i mean i post like late 70s early 80s arcades um where basically you have like a single screen game where uh, the mechanics are very confined and it's literally about just playing as well as you can to make sure your score is as high as possible. You know, when I think of games like the X-Men arcade game or like the Simpsons arcade game or something like that, they're just so brutally difficult and the only reason you replay them is just to get as far as you can just because you haven't seen whatever it is beyond. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sure there are many arcade games that do have some hidden secrets in them, but I feel like generally they're not going to be as prevalent just because the chances of players finding them are so low unless you spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars. You know, I, I mean, any one player, like players will obviously discover it over time. Right. But a single player is very unlikely to find extraneous content through right. an arcade experience. That's true. But no, I, I, I like I like talking about things like this along the secrets route because that seems like a really nice a, a really nice kind of category of games. Um, you know, I can think more recently. It's not an arcade game, but of Hyperlight Drifter, where a lot of exploration involves finding small secrets in the world, and not necessarily just for gameplay. It's more for like world building and lore, and completion completion's sake. But there's tons of like almost pixel hunting. Um, that you find small markers in the world that tell you, hey, there's something here. And it's really, really hard to tell given how uh, like full the world is in terms of each level. But when you do, you're usually rewarded in some way or other, either with a weapon or like an upgrade or some lore or just something. Yeah. So in that game, are there any specific... Uh, like, are you unable to progress without that kind of exploring? Or is it required in order to, you know, get past certain areas? Uh, not really, to be honest. There's, like, I can't think of very specific instances. Um, you mostly just have to find, for each area, you have to activate a few, like, shrines. But there's, there are more than you need to activate for each one to just beat the game. Okay. So, 
so you you know you can only find maybe half of them and you can beat the game maybe the other half were actually you know hidden or tucked away somewhere yeah that kind of that's kind of like the super mario 64 approach right where it's like you have a minimum requirement of stars and once you reach that requirement you can go ahead and finish the game beat the final boss all that kind of stuff but you know you know well i don't know about in hyperlight drifter but at least in, in mario 64 you know how many stars there are total they tell you i think I, I, I do they i wasn't sure if they told you like in game until you get them all you know now that you say that i'm not totally sure either so i could, <laughs> I could be wrong in any case there there are a ton of stars beyond the minimum requirement right mm-hmm. and chances are you might accidentally find one more than you need right because you do you are alarmed once you get the, the required number i think it's 70 right once you right. get that number the game tells you okay you can go on and fight bowser now but it's very possible that you didn't complete all the missions in the levels, right? Mm-hmm. So that kind of tips you off that there are more stars available to you, or at least other things. There are plenty of levels where you go in and you do like one or two stars, but there's it always tells you that there's five or whatever. So you know that there's probably more than just how the minimum number, which is cool because that is it's it's a way to encourage players to keep playing without forcing them to be like, hey, no, you have to find absolutely everything regardless mm-hmm. of how difficult or obscure the way to find it is. Well, I love also that on top of that, on top of just stars that you have to get in each level, there are even hidden levels, right, that you can find. And that's really cool because, I mean, there's just... All, it, it encourages all this exploration. Um, I mean, I, I guess not even just hidden levels, but there's, like, bonus levels. Like, I can think of the slide in P- Princess Peach's, like, tower that you jump into the portrait. Mm-hmm. Um and there's just, yeah, tons of little things. I hadn't thought about Super Mario 64, but that's a really good example. Yeah, I think that builds on the original Super Mario Brothers secrets, right? They are extraneous. They don't really do anything for you. They don't make you more powerful or or anything, which is not quite how... I mean, you'll get one-ups and stuff like that, um, which is kind of how Mario, the original Mario games, right. dealt out their rewards. Yeah, but it's still kind of uh somewhat frivolous and unnecessary but fun you know it's fun to find these secrets because you in the back of your mind you're thinking oh i don't know how many other people know about this it could just be maybe i found it maybe i was the first one to find it mm-hmm. um so that's a cool way to reward players without even giving it giving you anything tangible yeah which is quite a bit different than i think what modern games do which is basically it's either some minor upgrade equipment that you might get or like materials for upgrading, which may or may not be required. Or like you were saying, kind of like lore information where, mm-hmm. you know, your curiosity is, is going to be piqued potentially and hopefully by the way the game is put together in the world that it, that it inhabits. But uh, the tangible benefits are, are pretty small. I would say, I'm trying to think of a a good example of a modern game where like exploring around doesn't really yield you much in terms of satisfaction <laughs> well i mean i can i can definitely name one off the top of my head right now uh right. there's a relatively well-known puzzle game that came out a couple of years ago called the talus principle and when i first saw it i was like blown away at how beautiful it was and it's it's kind of this 3d puzzle game where you're it's mostly about doing puzzles in large in kind of 3d rooms a lot of them are 
uh, mazes almost. It's all about like hitting switches or, or grabbing a key or doing this or that, but in a 3D world. And the puzzles are really interesting, especially when you have to think in three-dimensional space. But the thing that really got me was that it's this beautiful world and you can walk around almost anywhere on like within the confines of it. And then, you know, you'd go off to one section, like going way out of your way in order to find nothing, effectively a dead end. Or maybe you'd get, at, at the best, you'd get a nice view of something. But none of it really felt planned. It was just like, it was just like they, they had a big world, they placed the puzzles down, but they didn't bother trying to like close off sections. They left it open. They didn't close off sections that didn't really have anything. And as a result, there's a ton of dead ends and it's not really rewarding for the player at all to try to go out of your way. I was expecting it to have like hidden puzzles or hidden rewards or uh, in the game there are these terminals you can you can access. I expect it to have like hidden terminals with extra lore in those hard to reach places or like out of the way places. And just there was nothing. Hmm. And that was really, really frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of in contrast to that, the way that the witness kind of builds puzzles upon puzzles and like there are a bunch that are kind of hidden from you at first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might be in a bigger puzzle, like walking around. Like I think one of the one of the first times I realized that was like walking around and, you know, those puzzles where you have to like step on the platforms and they light up. Mm-hmm. Well, like I remember going up and then like looking down at it and realizing that the whole thing kind of put it was like a big puzzle together. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And basically, like each individual puzzle is like one larger puzzle where you're where you're getting the electricity to flow through multiple areas. And then you know, on top of that, just all the hidden puzzles, like the like the clouds that you can that you can um, tie together the way you do yeah. just regular objects, that kind of thing. You know, that stuff that really enhances uh, a puzzle game in particular i think mm-hmm. and yeah that's unfortunate that, that the talus principle doesn't really have much of that yeah um so for me like that's i think it was the prime example for me of a game that has exploration and almost encourages it just from how open it is and how beautiful it is and then just doesn't give you anything as a result so that makes me kind of want to lead into like the 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 next exploration kind of mechanic if you want to call it that whereas mm-hmm. like the legend of zelda style right where exploration is required to make progress in the game and right. the way they encourage you to explore is by locking items away in places that you're not going to know or necessarily even have any kind of idea beforehand so like in the original legend of zelda right a lot of the items that you find are in the dungeons which makes sense but finding the dungeons is not easy in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So even just doing the major sections of the game requires exploration. So you have to, you know, use items in the world to open up doors or use items to navigate across areas you couldn't before. And, you know, every time you step down with that little stair, uh, you know, the stair uh, tile, and you hear that little sound where I've been walking down, you know, you don't know where you're going to go. You don't know if it's going to be a new level necessarily. It's not, I mean, like the level one with the tree is pretty obvious, but most of the other ones aren't. Exploring and rewards are interlinked. There, there is not one without the other. Right. And every item you get is useful in some way. 
and I would say extremely useful. Like I can't really think of any items in the original Legend of Zelda that are extraneous because mm-hmm. rupees have a, a very high value in order to get either a heart piece or potions or, you know, other other objects that allow you to make progress elsewhere in the game. So, you know, and unfortunately, like in modern games, you don't see the exploration and the reward tied so, so much together where like, you usually it's, oh, here's a little thing that you find. Isn't that cool? Whereas mm-hmm. like, if you don't explore in Zelda, you're not, you're not going to go anywhere. Right. Well, I mean, the game is, is exploring and like, yeah, I, I find that really appealing because I, it, it's something that I really enjoy doing in games that I'll naturally do try to kind of hit every nook and cranny as, as possible or that that's possible to be reached. So like uh, for me, like games, games in that style really, really resonate. They, they make me want to just keep going and playing and seeing what's around the next corner. It's funny because I think of modern games and how big they are. And I'm just like, wow, like who has time to, to, to find everything that's <laughs> here. Right. Like even, thinking back to like the the rpgs of the playstation era and stuff like those game worlds are so huge you know it would take you hours and hours and hours to go into every location search every path find every item whereas like in and i i have to imagine that when the legend of zelda came out players of nes games felt the same way it must have felt impossibly huge even though now it seems pretty you know pretty small (laughs) Uh, and confined but you know the way that i think zelda pulls off exploration or or it's kind of like a sink or swim thing it's like okay here you go we're not going to tell you where to go or what to do or anything you Mm -hmm. have to you have to have the desire to explore in yourself if you want to play this game whereas i think most modern games have almost completely abandoned that it's kind of like or at least we're going to push you in the right direction first so that you we you know you're not totally lost, and then maybe we'll open up, and you can do some more exploring on your own after a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because, like, I mean, we're talking about Zelda here, and you t- you mention modern games, and like the current trend is to make everything a big open world game. I mean, just in the last year, I've played a whole bunch of them. Like, I played Final Fantasy 15, Breath of the uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, Horizon Zero Dawn. And, like, they all just take the idea of having a huge open world and just, like, super run with it. And it's, you know, you you can think of the original Zelda as having an open world. And I'm going to I'm going to put this in quotes because it's it's so different from the modern interpretation of what an open world game is. Right. And, yeah, I, I just feel like the encouragement to explore in Zelda, you're not. You're not really being told go here, go there, do this, do that. You're just you're just sort of you're in the world, and I feel like in all these other games, it's it's all about quests and markers and objectives, plot points, and you know it's it's like the game's holding your hand, and I I just want to go and explore most of the time. Yeah, I mean for a game like Breath of the Wild, they do a, a decent job of kind of curtailing the amount of quests. Yes, you have a few to get you started but they're they're relatively small and easy to accomplish i don't know like whenever i would go to each town and get like a slew of quests and just like roll my eyes and think uh more things i don't want to do <laughs> <laughs> you must have talked to more characters than i did oh i i i'm a completionist i tried to do everything 
And that's that's one of the things with these open world games. Like, they have way more content than I have the patience to do. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's that that's that is one of the fallbacks of modern open world games, where it's just like, look how big our world is, and then you're just like, that's too big. Nobody nobody has time for all this, and nobody cares about these characters because you either didn't put any thought into them. That's why like Skyrim never appealed to me very much because it's like I do not care about a single character in that game. None of them are right. interesting. They don't do anything really for you other than walk around with you and block <laughs> your progress at certain points that you can't avoid. It's like, I don't care about you. If I could kill them all without consequence, I absolutely would. Savage. Well, it's just they like get in your way, right? And yeah, they're necessary for quest. Well, and the other thing, of course, is that you have characters that you can't kill because they are, right. they're quest reliant. And so <laughs> it makes us all miss Morrowind when you could just kill anybody and have a doomed world. Well, yeah, it's it's just it it makes for a very like weird incongruous world where some characters can be killed and then you get thrown in jail or whatever or or you're killed yourself or mm-hmm. some characters you just can't do anything to and they're impervious to everything you can throw at them and it just it just doesn't make any sense and you know that game relied so heavily on giving players things to do moment to moment because if they didn't you would have no idea where to even begin because it's just so impossibly big. Right. So I feel like Skyrim is definitely a game that does not reward players well at all. Mm-hmm. There's just not, I don't know, there's just not much to do that feels worthwhile outside of the main quest. I mean, I'm, I'm, I must be in the minority on this because of how many people play Skyrim continuously and have played it for so many years. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I've heard that cr- those critical thoughts put out million or not millions of times but dozens of times so i i don't think you're maybe we're in a vocal minority but very vocal <laughs> but it's funny because like on the surface you know they are built on the same idea of, of how zelda was constructed but i think in retrospect zelda's compactness of design makes it so that you can have useful items for everything that you find You don't have to just throw in a bunch of filler stuff in order to make it seem like there's something there. And unfortunately, a lot of the later Zelda games did not do this successfully. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I would say, I would say even Ocarina of Time, a lot of the stuff that you find is is useless or at least, you know, marginally beneficial. Yeah. If you don't find it in a dungeon, you probably don't need it. Mm Mm-hmm. I think there may be a couple of exceptions. I think like the hook shots, one of those things that's like um you you find it in a mini dungeon. Oh yeah. But other than that, you know, you know you're gonna find the item you need in the dungeon. You're gonna use it in the dungeon, and then you're gonna find uses for it elsewhere occasionally. Right. And unfortunately, I feel like uh, Ocarina of Time was kind of the real template for a lot of modern games in terms of oh, its rewards. Right. Like, I mean, think about the things that you get in ocarina of time right if you collect the, all the skulls you get a bigger wallet right whoop de doo it's cool it's it's super not worth it it's like trying to get all the korok seeds in breath of the wild not that bad like, thankfully but <laughs> i i did it but my point is in terms of a reward it's like yay i i did it i guess Hooray. yeah i mean rupees are so easy to come by and i can't really think of too many things that are worth more than 99 rupees when you buy them yeah, the incentive to, to to do that is pretty low, except that they brilliantly put in a a great sound effect that kind of drives you crazy if you don't do it. <laughs> so that's like their secret way of, of encouraging you to explore 
because you don't i mean you don't know ahead of time what the reward's going to be do you or do they yeah. tell you i can't remember no you you don't know you just kind of get it when you go and deliver the right amount of sculptulas yeah so i i, I miss that that substantive reward like okay mm-hmm. i went down here i got a boomerang sweet i know that's going to be useful for something or like in link the past you find stuff and then you find people you find some it's like a, a blacksmith, right? And then he can upgrade your sword. Now, you have to have the upgraded sword in order to beat the game. But, you know, you find him and you need him. So mm-hmm. that's useful. That's a very useful thing to, to find. Um, right. There are some... Link to the Past had some kind of marginal rewards. But most of the stuff in that game, too, is is quite useful and can make your, your life way easier. Whereas right. once you get to Ocarina of Time, it's kind of like, yeah, you'll find some cool stuff sometimes, maybe. Um, but it's mostly just extraneous stuff, masks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, since we're talking about Zelda and especially like some of the modern Zeldas, I feel like I feel like I have to talk about the Soul series just because you know it's it's it der- derives so much from Zelda, especially the original one in terms of like the spirit of the game and that sense of exploration. Um, just kind of when we were talking about Skyrim just now and like Breath of the Wild and I'm thinking of these open world games and yeah, cool. I can run around and do all this cool stuff. But for me, like I want to get lost in the intricate mazes that you find in Dark Souls or like, you know, look out at the vista way in the distance and think I can't just run across the plane to get there. I have to like find my way across this world. And obviously everyone talks about Dark Souls 1 as having incredible level design, especially with regard to how it treats uh, vertical traversal, right? Mm-hmm. How there's there's more of a vertical world than in most other games. And I, I mean, I love that feeling. Like, the world is small compared to, you know, open world games. And there's not like these big open fields and you don't get a horse or whatever. But there's just so much exploration, so much packed into every single nook and cranny. And while you don't need any of it basically like you (laughs) the things you actually have to do to beat the game are relatively small which i which i find fascinating there obviously is a large benefit to fully exploring the world in terms of items you find covenants you find lore you get um and for me it's like this perfect combination of like both upgrades and new monsters and content and then like this world building and lore that you'll get from going around, you know, every new NPC is something interesting that's been put there. It's not just, Hey, I'm a shopkeeper. Here you go. Yeah. And I, 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 I don't know. I love it. I think it's like this, this epitome of design when it comes to exploration and encouraging exploration. Well, I think what it does with regard to encouragement is the difficulty is such that yes, you can get by with your starting equipment if you really wanted to, but the, the reason to explore is A, you just have to figure out where you're going because nobody really tells you where to go exactly. They give you some vague ideas. Yeah. You know, you got to ring the bell. Okay, I don't know where the bell is, so let's just go find it. Um, but the other thing is, like, the the game is difficult enough and leveling up becomes a, a game of diminishing returns so quickly that you want to find something that's going to help you <laughs> in a significant way. And, you know... A lot of the stuff does, even if it's not obvious why it will help you at first. You know, I think of like getting a, a Titanite shard as a drop. Until you find a blacksmith, you're not going to necessarily know what that's right going to do for you. Like, I think the item description tells you it's used for upgrading weapons or something. But, 
you know, you don't you realize don't really what that's what gonna that mean. Entails. Yeah, you don't know. You don't realize just from getting a Titanite shard just how much more powerful your weapons can become through upgrading. Mm-hmm. And that makes the game significantly easier. If you have a, a, a level one weapon, you're going to have a very, very hard time after a while. Or you'll find, you know, things like uh, black fire bombs or something like turpentine. Uh, I guess that's Demon Souls. I forget what it's called. Uh, <laughs> in uh, I mean, it's just like, oh, turpentine to light your weapon on fire. Right. And then, you know, you can yeah. see like, okay, that's going to... This is something's going to be weak against this, right? It exists mm-hmm. for a reason, and then you try it out on some stuff, and you realize, okay, that's pretty sweet. Um, so yeah, I, I, the difficulty of that game specifically is part of the encouragement of exploration there. Yeah, and that's not the case, I think. In I, even in Zelda games, that's not really the case. Traversal of the world itself is kind of how Zelda deals with exploration, finding mm-hmm. items that allow you to explore further, whereas you can go pretty much everywhere in Dark Souls. You're only gated off by like story stuff. Well, then or keys, yeah, items, exactly. There are some keys, but other than that, well, sometimes by enemies as well. Sure, sure, sure. What I mean is, there's not like you don't need like a hookshot or the spinning right. thingy in Twilight Princess to go, get across somewhere. You just run or walk. Mm-hmm. It's less, uh, it's less movement me- mechanic focused and just kind of like some gates and making you powerful enough to beat the enemies that are going to block your path. Yeah. It's an interesting thing you point out because like I hadn't thought about how much overlap Zelda and like Metroid games have with regard to, Hey, let me get getting this item unlocks is basically key. Let's me traverse. Let's me open. Let's me move, make progress in this area that I'd seen before, but couldn't, couldn't go to. Yeah. So I would say Zelda games and Metroid games are about as closely related as you can get in terms of their mechanics, except for one is top-down slash yeah. 3D, and one is side-scrolling slash 3D. Um, <laughs> First person versus third person. And third, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, you have to get specific items that allow you to move through areas that you just couldn't move before. Um, the Morph Ball, obviously, being like the first example yeah. in almost every Metroid game. Um, and then I don't know if Zelda has one. This I guess getting the sword, I mean, right? Usually, like yeah, sword, and then like slingshot or something to hit things from far away, or the bow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's just one of those things where Nintendo kind of used two different game types to flesh out essentially the same idea. Yeah, which is interesting. I I, I don't know if I would say. I mean, in terms of resonating with fans i think the zelda games obviously have have managed to do that better uh poor metroid yeah i don't don't know exactly (laughs) what it is about metroid that was made it so specific to the american audience in particular it seems Mm -hmm. might just be the sci-fi setting might just be how it's supposed to be a more mature game i don't know i'm not sure i mean i I think of all the sci-fi animes that exist and i but maybe it's like specifically it's it's reliance on alien as its source material which mm. may i mean maybe alien just was not a popular movie in japan with like a regular movie goes or something i don't know but anyway it just makes me laugh that like you have this huge 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 zelda franchise and then you have like a metroid franchise that's big very big but also mm-hmm. weirdly neglected and it, the fans of it are way less 
you you always see apprehension in, in Metroid fans, whereas you always see like a lot of enthusiasm from Zelda fans. Right, but I think I think the Zelda franchise has served its fan base better than the Metroid franchise has, at least at least lately. We'll we'll see about Samus Returns. Uh, I'm playing it now, and I think it's actually quite good. It definitely has more in in common with the other handheld Metroid games in terms of its yeah. uh, just the the view of of the world you're in and kind of navigating around is much more confined. You kind of feel more like a mole than you do a person at times, but uh, mechanically, it's very, very sound and fits right in with most of the 2D Metroid games. That's good. That's exciting. But yeah, I mean, I I love well. I mean, with Metroid Prime specifically, mm-hmm. giving you so what's interesting about what's interesting about Metroid Prime to me is that they you had, they had to completely rethink how platforming works because there's a lot of platforming in that game oh yeah and it's mostly really impressive actually weird jumping and like just figuring out how the 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 physics of it work right yeah and i I think about like the morph ball like half pipes that you have to jump up and down oh man those are tricky they are tricky but like it's an interesting example of like okay how are we going to transform you know what we had done in 2d to 3d and the unfortunate part, to me at least, in that game is that the exploration, well, I would say that the, the Metroid games uh, didn't really give you much in terms of lore. Even if you wanted to find it, it just wasn't there. You know, there was a little right. information you could infer from the Chozo statues and stuff like that, but you're not going to get any concrete information. And then Metroid Prime completely 180 on that and gave you way more information than you could ever read <laughs> and basically forcing I mean, you can you, read it well you could but i don't know who would want to but you know they tie exploration in with the scanning mechanic and right. a lot of the puzzles are based on scanning so they encourage you to just check out every orange box that you happen to see and yeah. in case you're going to need it and most of them are worthless or at least don't give you any they don't help you progress they just help you learn more about the world which is great that's fine but it feels not optional mm-hmm. which i think kind of holds that game back from truly being in the same style and having the same heart as like the original metroid or super metroid or or the early legend of zelda games yeah um i definitely agree with that i i like I enjoy reading the lore, but I don't feel like I get very much out of it because there's so much, and I I don't know. Like I th- I think about again about Dark Souls where there's very little text and it's mostly on things you collect that you're looking at all the time, right? Um, it's kind of interesting. Like I uh, games that have I don't know books or or lore or or uh, a codex that you can collect. I'll like browse through them once in a while, but I. I like never read that shit. Whereas in the Souls games, I'll sit there and like pour over every single item description because I need to know. There's so little given to you. I need to, and every single little piece like seems very important, right? It always hints at something. Um, it's like a less is more kind of philosophy, and I, I, I think, I think, I think in that case, I definitely prefer how the Souls does it. I mean, being able to just 
get a lot of world building out of a few small things as opposed to having to pour over all this text that you might not care about. Yeah, I would say I fall into the camp of not generally that interested in the lore stuff while playing, mm -hmm. yet the game is interesting enough that I find myself thinking about it after the fact, which I, th I think that's kind of the reason you saw this whole industry crop up about lore videos for Souls games specifically, yeah. because, yeah, there are a lot of questions you find yourself asking because there are subtle clues all over the place. And whether you're paying attention to them or not actively while you're playing, I think they do definitely creep into your subconscious a little bit. Um, but for, for whatever reason, actually playing the game, I've, I very rarely would stop and read item descriptions, at least on my first playthrough. Uh, it was very much kind of like, all right, where do I have to go next? What do I have to kill next? Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's interesting. It's a very kind of subtle, underhanded almost way of encouraging you to to think more about the world and explore as much as you can and definitely definitely is geared toward making you want to play the game more than once i think that's yeah. kind of the key of of those from software rpgs it's like they're they're decent they're decent length uh for a single playthrough but they're not so long especially once you get good at those once you games. know what you need to do as well like know where to go yeah, I mean, Dark Souls took me like probably sixty hours or seventy hours to beat, as the, mm -hmm. and that was the first one I played all the way from start to finish. I see, yeah. But then you know I went and played Dark Souls two. Didn't you know it took me probably forty hours. Then I got to Demon Souls, probably took me like maybe thirty hours, maybe. And then Dark Souls three was like probably about the same, like thirty thirty five hours. Mm -hmm. And that's just because you start to understand the language of those games, and you know what to do. So. Yeah, you're you're encouraged to kind of explore a little bit and and get run through the game, and then you know like oh, there's probably going to be a different ending, or there's going to be NPCs that I didn't fulfill their their quest lines. That's I think right. one of the genius elements of the Souls games is like, hey, I found this character and he seems kind of interesting. I think of like uh, Sigmire, right? Yeah, Sigmire. You find him by uh, Sen's fortress, and I remember I actually attacked him. Uh, the first in my first playthrough and I killed him and then I realized like oh you know what I probably shouldn't have done that like I wonder what he was doing because <laughs> like I didn't even get to hear any of his dialogue other he than was just like sitting there depressed <laughs> well there are a lot of characters I killed accidentally because I didn't realize that they weren't going to be hostile to me like the vendor in uh, the undead burg I killed because I, just, I just like turned my oh, camera yeah. around and I just saw a dude there and I was like, oh, I've got to kill like, it. Ah. Yeah, so a lot <laughs> of that kind of stuff happened. But it's cool like because you see, and I think in Demon's Souls, Demon's Souls probably does a little better job of this because it introduces Ostrava early and he's like, he actually like walks around. He's not just yeah. sitting stationary. Well, and you also see, you also see the characters in the loading screens. I, I think in terms of That's like, true. In, in terms of making these characters you meet, interesting i think demon souls does the best job out of any souls game but yeah yeah so I mean, that's another that's another reason to explore and 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 replay because you know you don't know there there are easily characters that you might not know where they are and you might just happen to stumble across them and they may help you they may you may be able to summon them for bosses which is really helpful if you get mm -hmm. stuck um they may give you items that are helpful or tip you off about other characters that you might want to be wary of. All those kinds of things. They they very very smartly interweave all these elements together, um, 
and I can't really think of any any other games that do it quite as well now, you know. Yeah, I honestly can't either. I'd be It's interesting what like the legacy that they're leaving and in terms of design, how so many games have picked it up but like nothing quite scratches the same itches in the same way, you know. It is interesting, and I think the reason why they don't succeed where the Souls games do is because they don't understand why those worlds are compelling mm-hmm. you know they they try to add on a, a much more overt story arc like oh, i think God, of yeah. like lords of the fallen i'm just like i do not care about this guy actually one of the interesting things i think is like being able to create your own character in the souls games i think goes a long way towards getting players interested mm-hmm. and involved because your character i i don't always like silent protagonist but in in this case you are talked about so much especially in dark souls 3 where it's like everyone talks about you being <laughs> yeah you know the champion of ash and that kind of Ashen stuff one yeah like they refer they reference you not by name but by title kind of um yeah. but like with a game like lords of the fallen or something where they give you a character to play as i'm just inherently less interested i just don't i just don't really care about that and i think that's one of the reasons why the zelda games are also popular because yeah link is a is a stalwart of the series but you don't ever really learn all that much about him. And you can kind of mm-hmm. just imprint your own personality on him a lot of times. Right. And, I mean, people do, right? Yeah. I yeah. feel like Wind Waker is, like, one of the few examples where he actually has a very clear personality. Um, and even then, that's all just conveyed by facial expressions. It's not even anything, like, overt. He doesn't speak or or anything like that. The only story is is involved with trying to get his sister back, so... Yeah, there's still a lot of just question regarding who he actually is as a character, which is a smart way to also get people to kind of explore so they can hopefully learn more. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was interested in was in Dark Souls at first was like, what am I doing here? Like, yeah, they tell you kind of a little bit like you rescue or you don't rescue Oscar, but he he, t- he rescues you and then you find him and he dies and he goes, oh, here's the thing I was going to do. And you're like, OK, cool. I'm just going to go and see what's there, I guess. And I was always kind of hoping I'd find more information about myself. And you you don't really, until the end, I guess, you kind of figure out who you are in terms of, like, what's at your center, mm-hmm. whether you want to link the fire or not. But um, there's always kind of a, a, a hope that you're going to learn more about yourself as you play those games. Yeah, I guess so. Hmm. Of course, that's... Another those those games are all examples of worlds that are created very specifically, right? Everything is crafted specifically. The item placements right. are are hand placed. The level designs are all static and and purposeful. Um, the so then, at least my third uh, idea of how games can successfully encourage you to explore them is with randomization slash procedural generation. I <laughs> think of like Diablo specifically, right. where, yeah, you kind of have a general framework. There are, there are so many levels to to the game. They are finite, but each level is generated randomly every time you play. There are patterns, but, you know, it's not going to be exact. And then, because of the randomness of the world design, you then have to randomize your item drops. So... The reason you crawl every inch of a of a level you haven't 
been in before is because you want to find the best sword or the best right. you know, magic spell or whatever. Or just like find enemies that you know like will drop a certain thing or give you lots of XP. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or try to find quest lines, right? So I guess the original Diablo had only a few. There's like the butcher subquest. There's a subquest where you have to like find the 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 sign for like the tavern, I think it is, or something like that, or the inn. Mm-hmm. You have to go in and find that, and like that's kind of random because its exact location is not really known, and you just kind of have to scour each level in oh, order yeah. to find it. Right? You know it's down there somewhere, but you don't know where. And in order to complete that, you just kind of kind of have to run around everywhere and, and be, destroy everything. Um, <laughs> And I think that can work really well. Um, it can get kind of tedious, uh, it, especially if you have to like traverse back into uh, earlier levels of those games. It's kind of dull because you're not going to get loot that's worth it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you do have to be careful about how you have players physically progress through the game. If there's a lot of backtracking in a procedural generation game, I'm not really that happy with that. Diablo has a little bit of that, but you kind of just beeline to town so that you can like buy healing items and, and stock up and all those kinds of things. Um, right. Like and the, I mean, you can usually... I was going to say, because you could teleport back to town, like you can usually clear out a lot of stuff before having... before like Instead of having to revisit an area, you can usually clear out floors and things and just teleport back, drop shit off, come back. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that kind of reduces the... Uh, the re-exploration, I guess it's, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of like, I, I don't play a whole lot of games that involve procedural generation just because I'm not a huge fan. Uh, well, I should say what happens is I become very aware of the algorithms that are generating the levels mm-hmm. and I start to recognize the patterns and then it starts to feel all kind of the same to me. Um, I see. But if but a few games I think do it really well. I think actually Diablo is a fantastic example of a game that um, kind of always feels the same when you're playing it. Like from playthrough to playthrough, the dungeons feel pretty much the same. And I think that's mostly because it's focused so heavily on the loot drops more than the level designs. I see. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like I feel like loot drops are kind of like the the current. And I would say even like Breath of the Wild has this, where like since you can only hold so many weapons at a time, the idea is you kind of want to stockpile the best weapons you can find, mm-hmm. and that starts you know the history of that kind of item uh, item acquisition dates back a long, long, long time. But I do feel like it's made a big resurgence. Uh, I imagine that uh, Horizon Zero Dawn is kind of like that. If not items specifically that are like weapons, at the very least, um, like upgrade equipment and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's primarily about... It's primarily about collecting, like crafting items and things. Um, I don't know if you necessarily try to explore to go out of your way... And go out of your way to get those items. Um, I think the exploration's more to fulfill side quests. Yeah, they they do it in a pretty different fashion from a lot of open world games I've seen, where you know you'll you'll get to you'll you'll follow the main quest, and get to a new town, you'll do side quests, and the side quests will lead you to explore the map and like really fill it in. 
which is pretty cool in, in a lot of ways because it means that you can you can kind of be led by quests to do everything and as a result like that added to the fact that you there's a limited number of collectibles that count for like 100% in the game and they just show you you can get maps for them and they just show you general regions where to get them like you can you can pretty easily just go through and like explore the full world and get every single thing of import like that the game considers important for the platinum trophy or whatever you want to say mm-hmm. um so it's it's yeah it, it's interesting like I, I feel like it's less about encouraging to you to explore more about showing you the world i see of course and that game's not procedurally generated either right no 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 it's, yeah everything's been placed yeah yeah so yeah crafting items specifically like I, a lot of games have implemented crafting systems Mm-hmm. especially open world games uh, yeah tell me about it so gotta, gotta give you something for killing something exactly and yeah i don't that's not my favorite reward for exploring either because a lot of stuff you won't end up using mm-hmm. i'm thinking of so i was playing pandora's tower for the wii oh, and yeah. that game has kind of an upgrade weapon system that's kind of loot based like you kill enemies and they drop stuff and then you get you know you acquire enough of those items and you combine various combinations of those items and then you can upgrade your weapons and like the requirement to upgrade your weapons kind of changes from level to level mm-hmm. which i find kind of weird like it's one thing to do it like the souls way where it's like okay you need five titanite shards or whatever and then you need some titanite chunks and then you need titanite slab or whatever like that's a kind of a normal natural progression that maybe right. a little bit like not realistic but at least it makes sense like titanite shards aren't rare large titanite shards are more, more rare chunks are even more rare than that and then slabs are very very rare right mm-hmm. like that that kind of makes sense to me but like with pandora's tower what frustrated me was like oh you need like these three items and then your next upgrade requires three totally different items. Like, they don't build on each other. It's just kind of, like, uh, randomly assigned, it, it feels like. And the purpose behind that, actually, is to get you to explore the levels that you've already been through. Because um, how that game works is you... Each each night, or each day, I guess, you go into a, one of the one of the towers and or one of the levels of the tower i guess mm-hmm. and you go through and you it's like a it's like a puzzly dungeon kind of like zelda i guess and you go through and then you beat the boss and then you move on to the next one well the the types of items you get are restricted to the the part of the tower you're in so you can only find certain items in certain towers and so you may come across a weapon upgrade you need way later in the game that requires items that you just don't get in any of the the dungeons that you're in so yeah. you have to go back and scour through and replay an old dungeon in order to like accumulate some stuff that you that you just either couldn't get before because you had too many of them or whatever because there's a there's a cap on how many items of each type you can hold and i think that's kind of a clunky way to encourage exploration or mm-hmm. i don't know the incentive to go back unless like you are seriously hindered by the game's difficulty which pandora's tower doesn't really do I don't know. It, it, it's kind of annoying to be like, all right, I got to go find three of these items. I'm going to go farm them in a level that's super easy and I don't really care about now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like an interwoven world where you have to go back and forth through it 
in order to progress. It's like very linear A to B. And there, any you know, each each part of the tower is segmented off. It's its own level. It's not it's not interconnected to anything else. It's a nice attempt, I think. And a lot of the, that game is really interesting. I think its level designs are cool, and I think its just overall premise mm-hmm. is interesting. But in terms of like encouraging you to explore it, I think it actually did a, a pretty poor job, unfortunately. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just not really into crafting as a reward system, unless that's like the whole point of the game, right? Dragon Quest Builders. That's the whole thing. That's mm-hmm. what that game is. And that's fine because you just have to strike out in some direction and go find something and then figure out what it, what you can do with it and then do that. Right. I guess those kinds of games are like their whole a whole subset of like exploration only games in some ways, you know what I mean? Yeah, I was just thinking about that cuz I mean I played a I haven't played obsessive amounts of Minecraft, but I played a good chunk a while back. And I guess Terraria falls into a similar boat, Starbound, whatever. And, you know, they all have procedurally generated worlds. And it's funny because I've spent countless hours in mines and shafts and whatever, just exploring the, the bowels of each of these worlds. And the the level generation definitely makes, or the generation definitely makes a huge difference. Because, like, you know, there there are some mods in Minecraft that you can get that create these beautiful worlds that you really just want to explore and like interesting topographies to go through whereas at least originally like there wasn't really much to see you're just kind of running around a not very interesting world right and i think terraria always did a great job especially with like all the dungeons you could get and all the different biomes it's super fun and it it's always different depending on the world that you're in so even though like the progression is kind of the same where you know there's going to be a jungle, you know there's going to be a dungeon, you know there's going to be uh ways to get down all the way to the to like the core or like the bottommost planes. It's it's still interesting and different each time. Now, that's a side scrolling game, right? Terraria, yeah. Okay. It's it's like a platformer. Yeah, I'm curious on your thoughts uh about like 2D exploration versus 3D cuz for me, I'm not sure where I sit. Uh, I find myself a lot more interested in 3D games right now, whereas I was mm-hmm. not necessarily before. Even games like, um, well, I guess you'd say kind of like in the Zelda 3D style that are like third third person's perspective, kind of have some platformy elements and, and kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. Like I've been playing a lot of like 64 era 3D games right now. <laughs> you know, like the age of the, you know, or the, the birth of the 3D platformer, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun to go back to a lot of those games because, I mean, part of the the gimmick in those and, and the reason you wanted to explore is just because, like, you hadn't seen a game in 3D before like this, you know? Like, yeah, sure, you had, like, some first-person games like Doom and stuff like that, but you didn't really have 3D games in the way that, like, Mario 64 was a 3D game or Banjo-Kazooie or, or like, Castlevania 64 even. Right. You know? So going back and playing those old games is kind of interesting because part of part of the incentive for me at least is just like oh i just kind of want to see how to do it like how do the mechanics work uh mm-hmm. how does jumping feel how does running feel like how do how do i move in 360 degrees yeah. like do you know is it responsive do i is it sluggish like can i turn just by using the analog stick or do i have to like use the r and l buttons to like turn the camera you know how does the camera yeah. behave all those kinds of things i, I think kind of gave a lot of early 3d games at least kind of a pass on having particularly interesting worlds 
mm-hmm. you know, like Donkey Kong 64 and, and Banjo-Kazooie kind of have kind of a negative reputation by, by some because they're so just collect-a-thon heavy. Like, yeah. it doesn't really matter. Like, yeah, even Mario 64, I guess, is you're just getting a bunch of stars. Like, they're not helping you except to unlock doors for more levels. That's it. Right. It's not It's not meaningful beyond that. But I feel like you those games kind of get away with that because, you know, the idea of exploring in 3D was still pretty new. Right. I, I would agree. I mean, it, you, we're talking about these old games, and it's it's funny because I think of games that have done, like, navigating a 3D space in a satisfying way, and, like, Mario 64 was so ahead of its time. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting here struggling to think of games that have done it as well, like, even recently. Like, it, it's... They did such a good job with the the 3D exploration and movement and the world designs even. Yeah, I would say they were more successful in the movement category than they were in the in any other sense. Like I, I think that the camera is well behind even oh, some yeah. of the other games of its time. Like I would say like Castlevania 64's camera is better than Mario 64. I believe it. Yeah. I'm sure people will not agree with me on that, but uh, I've played both fairly recently, and I had never played Castlevania 64 until very, very recently. And I found that game to be a heck of a lot more agreeable by modern standards than than certain parts of Mario 64. Mm-hmm. But, of course, at the same time, Mario 64's platforming is fantastic. I mean, there's reason I didn't just quit Mario 64, despite how frustrated I got sometimes. And that's because mm-hmm. it feels really, really good to play, so you... You kind of want to explore just because jumping around is fun. Right. I was going to say, just like the original Mario games, you feel like you can learn to play better. You know, it's not just like, oh, this is impossible to do. You're like, oh, I, I, I can I can learn how to do this a little better. I can time things better. I can move better. Like, learning the system pays off. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I think modern games in general kind of have abandoned entirely. I can't really think of any... Other than ukulele, I can't really think of any modern 3D games that even bother trying to make platforming interesting at all or navigation interesting. I wouldn't say. I mean, some of the Zelda games, I guess, kind of do. The yeah, I, w- I would say Zelda games. I I think a lot about Portal when I think about yes. movement in 3D space because I think it did a wonderful job even with very limited movement options. Yep. It's actually a really interesting game to look at from that perspective. And it's, yeah, like you are definitely navigating a 3D space and you have to wrap your head around it. And you can't, you're not, you're not, you know, the fucking mas- master of jump Mario here. <laughs> you All you can do is like do a tiny hop and yeah. walk around slowly. And yet you can do these amazing feats to get around the world. Right. I mean, they kind of have to shoehorn in a, a reason why your legs just aren't shattered every time you land from like 100 feet in there. But yeah, well, I get, get what you're you saying. You have like the, the jump still things. I don't know what they're called. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're, that's just, Aperture science something something. Exactly. That's just kind of like, oh, here, we know that logically it would make no sense for your body <laughs> to be flying at hundreds of miles per hour. But you're right. I mean, I think that's one of, the, uh, one of very few games where navigating and the act of moving around a 3d world is genuinely interesting mm-hmm. i would say to a lesser extent a game like uh the 3d puzzle game 
I don't know if I can help you with just 3D puzzle games. Yeah, it came out a few years ago, and uh, it's got like color-coded rooms and stuff, uh, and you have to do these weird kind of mind-bending puzzles in order to just get around. Oh, Antichamber. Antichamber, thank you. I was actually going to talk about it for this, yeah. Yeah, so that's a game where, I mean, you don't, I don't remember if you have even jumping mechanics in that game. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, you do? You do, because you can jump over things, I okay. think. Okay, <laughs> it's been a long time since I've played it, so I can't recall. But I haven't played it in a while either. What I do know is that it makes you think about 3D space in a very interesting way, which kind of puts a spin on exploration, right? Like, you have some preconceived ideas of how to explore a 3D space after all this time, yeah. especially, in, especially in first person, because there have been so many first person games. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of just turns all that on its head. It's like, oh, you know, you can't go forward unless you just, like, walk backwards through here. You just yeah. have to physically turn around and walk backwards. So that that's a cool way to make exploration interesting where it can otherwise become very, very stagnant. I also think of um, the unfinished swan where you have to like paint the world oh, yeah. in order to explore because you can't see it. It's just all a blank white space. I mean, the world obviously exists. Um, yeah. You, you're just, you're just, you can't perceive it. Right. Yeah, I love that mechanic. Yeah, it's just such a great idea, and it's weird that we've kind of, well, at least in terms of, because those games are getting pretty old now that I think about it. I mean, Unfinished Swan was a PS3 game, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, now, I don't know, I feel like all games are kind of going towards this homogenous run around in in third person kind of, yeah, you can jump, you can maybe grab on some ledges, climb some ladders, and then that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. you know honestly like i guess i haven't been playing very many 3d recent 3d games like the the biggest the biggest things are yeah like these big open world games like i mean final fantasy 15 it's not about moving around very much so you can't do much horizon you can you can climb and jump i mean you can compare it a lot to zelda breath of the wild i mean they even came out around the same time but I would argue Breath of the Wild has it beat in terms of traversal just because you can, like, glide and you can climb anything. Well, and you can abuse physics to ride a tree trunk across the sky. Oh, yeah. God, I love that. <laughs> so, but but even so, like, the movement options of Link himself aren't that interesting. It's more how you interact with the world. Like, I guess Nier Automata's semi-open world. And you have some cool movement options. Like, you can at least double jump um, and you can dash. You can that, glide a little bit there, too. Right, and that makes things, I think, a little more interesting. It, it, it was enough that, late into the game, it kept me interested in, in just moving around the world, even though I was retracing my steps a lot. Yeah. Actually, yeah, like, I mean, this is kind of tangential, but thinking about it, the one of the things I did like about Nier is there was backtracking, and it was like a... I mean, it, it, it was a set world from the start, but then things kind of open up and unlock as you progress... But what I really like is that parts of the world change in response to what's happening in the story or like what's going on. And that's that's really cool from like a, I guess, an exploration perspective, but more like a, a world building perspective where, you know, the the main part of the city ruins just gets like a huge hole in it. And suddenly you have to learn to traverse this new terrain. And that's that's actually pretty interesting. And then there's, you know, quests that start moving around and uh, new new machines that appear with different quests and i and i i really like that it reminded me of i mean to, to to talk about another game that did something similar like the metroid prime series i remember specifically the chozo ruins it's like the first area you go to 
and it's very simple, very basic. You go through it, cool, everything's good. And then you end up having to come back later to get some Chozo artifacts. And now there's Chozo ghosts and like way more difficult things. And, you know, the, the area has changed from how you first remember it. And I really like that pattern of like taking something you thought you were familiar with and changing it because you're going to have to come back through later. So instead of, you know, just backtracking to the same stuff, it actually changes and updates with the world, with the, with like the, your progress in the game. I think that's such a difficult thing to pull off successfully, which is why we don't see a whole lot of it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of, well, I, I think like the dark world in Link to the Past is a great example of that, right? You're sort of familiar with the area because it's technically yeah. the same place, but it's reconfigured in a certain way. And it's just a little bit off, so you kind of have to find either a new item. Like, uh, I think the, the hammer helps you a lot in the Dark World early on to hit down some posts that you yeah. that like block off bridges and stuff. And then you can kind of go back and forth between the light and dark world to get around to places you haven't been able to explore before. So, yeah, I, I think uh, that's one of the coolest things that I think developers can actually do to encourage exploration is kind of recontextualize areas that you're familiar with. Because otherwise, you know, the, the alternative to that is to have just a huge open place like GTA 5 or something where it's just like a sprawling cityscape. Yeah. Or just have you boringly go back and forth between the same areas a bunch of times. And I, and arguably, you know, the Metroid games kind of do this. At least Metroid Fusion, I would say, is kind of like this because it uses items less to help you explore and more just like arbitrary story gates. Oh, God. Okay. But the but the good Metroid games, or I should say <laughs> the better Metroid games, because Metroid Get Fusion... wrecked, Fusion. Fusion does have merits on its own. Um, <laughs> but uh, I would say the, the better Metroid games kind of at the very least they point you towards things they 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 give you environmental clues that you can at some point reach these places you just can't do it yet right so it's difficult it's and i get that it's difficult which is why i'm I'm pretty lenient i think on level design in terms of using that specifically to encourage exploration mm-hmm. it's funny to me how i was actually just thinking again about like the original legend of zelda kind of forced you to use inference to figure out what the items did for you like the the ladder because the game's presented in a flat plane right you don't really necessarily know right off the bat what the ladder's going to be for but yeah it's it's not it's not the traditional use of a ladder exactly but you know in that dungeon you come across rooms that have moats essentially or paths that are blocked by waterways and brilliantly they made it so you don't even have to equip the, the item you can just like go up next to it and it automatically uh, mm-hmm. is placed for you and there are some better uh, better examples like the the heart piece that's kind of off on like a dock kind of off the coast triggers in your mind that like okay there's got to be a way to get there and then when you discover the raft later on you go okay i'm sure i can use this to kind of go out or, you know, it at least puts you in the in the mindset of like, okay, I, I can probably use this to get to use on water, right? That would make sense. Where have right. I seen a water area that I, where it looks like there's something I should be able to get or go to? So that's not necessarily a recontextualizing of, or that's not a changing of the world, but it is reshaping the, the player's approach to it. 
So if you right. can do that, if you can do that and combine that with an actual changing world, that I think would be one of the better worlds to explore for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm trying to think of a game that actually does that. Metroid Prime kind of does in a few areas. Right. Because it uses the the various visors to kind of allow you to see things that you couldn't see before, uh, which then kind of gives you uh, kind of recontextualized. Usually it's in the shape of like enemies that you have to use the visor for in order to just locate and kill. Yeah. Well, there are also like areas that have invisible platforms that you can use visors for. Right. That's true. Yeah. And I always thought that was a pretty good use of those. Yeah. I need to replay those games because it's been a long time. Well, I've only ever, yeah. f- and I've only ever beaten uh, Prime. I haven't, I haven't beaten Prime 2. Oh. Prime 2 gets, yeah, it, it slogs along at certain parts, but I think it's a pretty solid game. And 3 is weird, but it, it's solid in its own ways. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a feeling I'll skip 3 if I'm going to. I may, well, if I, if I play them, I'll. I'll probably play all of them, but um, if I don't, three would be the one I would I would skip for mm-hmm. sure. So actually, so one thing I wanted to talk about because you mentioned it earlier, or you like briefly hinted at it when you were talking about the Skulltulas and Ocarina of Time, mm-hmm. and how they have that really fucking obnoxious sound, and you're just like, I want to kill you, <laughs> I want to find you, I want to kill you, and it's brilliant. Um, it really is. And I mean, I can think of a few other games that have done it, but I w- I want to like think of more now because. You know, it's it's a brilliant way to you know you have a collectathon or whatever you're trying to hunt down something, and they're hidden usually, and I think it's a really good way to tell you, hey, there's something here even though you can't see it. And so I recently finished playing Fez, and they they pull it off in that where at least with the cube bits that you have to get eight of to form a full a full cube. Whenever you're in a sec- in an area that has one, you'll always hear like a little pinging every few seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you're closer, it'll sound louder, which I I think is great. And in Hyper Light Drifter, I was talking about these like they're not shrines, but these these things you have to activate. And whenever you're in a in a map, so like you can kind of zone between areas. So whenever you're in a map that has one of those you can hear it in that section and it's very very low and very subtle but that was that was like my cue to know hey this is where i need to be and i would kind of scour the areas to find those ones and be like aha yes it's in here samus returns does this by uh having kind of just like a little alarm and as Mm -hmm. you get closer to metroids um it just beeps it's kind like of a faster sensor. and faster. Yeah, yeah, it's like a it's like a sensor essentially. Yeah, and that's really effective, right? Because it's a pretty annoying sound. It's supposed to be alarmist, right? That's the whole point. Yeah. So it fits, but it's annoying enough where it's like, okay, I want to shut you up. Kind of like your smoke detector is, right? It's like <laughs> <laughs> you're like, ah, oh, Metroid's so annoying. Well, it's, it's just one of those things. That's like it, it, it compels you to find the Metroid because, or just run away from the area. <laughs> I guess you could do that too, but uh, because it's just like, yeah, it's it's a it's just a small audio cue that just same reason that the the Zelda games beep at you when your hearts are low. It's like, yeah, it prioritizes you to do something very specific by basically being annoying at you. The Skulltulas are not nearly on that scale. Um, the sound is irritating to me at times. Right. But it's not like I'm going to go crazy. And it's they're pretty confined. You have to be pretty close to them before you even hear them. 
but I do I do think it's a great thing to add, like a very noticeable sound effect that when you get close to it, your ears kind of perk up. I, I mean, I think it could have been a little better of a sound effect, but I mean, you know, they're going for semi-realism in the game, so they that they use what they would fit. Oh sure, uh, yeah. No, I, I think it's a brilliant technique, right? I mean, for a for a, a medium that incorporates visuals and mm-hmm. you know. Um, sometimes haptic feedback or or all kinds of things yeah i mean it would be it would be strange to me not to include audio cues to encourage you to explore things um right i'm trying to think of i feel like audio is actually like really underused for that i mean i i would agree for the most part like games i mean some games use audio to really good effect but a lot of them you know just do the very the, the basics like play music play sound effects you don't necessarily have those cues yeah uh i think bloodborne does a pretty good job of of using audio cues because uh, you know in the nightmare um Mm -hmm. no not in the nightmare but in the area where the enemies respawn if you don't kill the bell maidens Mm -hmm. you know you hear the bells pretty clearly and it's not obvious where they are right away and you're also being attacked by enemies so your ability yeah. to search them it's out pretty hectic is pretty difficult right but they they do teach you like at the start right of uh you're talking about uh yahar ghoul yes that's what i'm talking when about you, when you go there after you kill rom yes yeah so like at the very beginning you you see those enemies and you might try to kill them and, they, and then they come back and you hear the bell woman and like once you get past the first laser dude laser laser amygdala there is that first bell ringing woman and i think the others are considerably more hidden yes they are but at least they like cue you there being like hey this, this is this is what's going on it's pretty well done yeah absolutely that's what i'm saying it's like they give you they give you all the information for the first one basically that you could need she's visible not necessarily right away but she's not hidden right she's just kind of and above she's you. on your critical path like that's where you have to go um, oh, I guess she's of. up the stairs. You could miss her if you're just like sprinting past, but she, but I guess she's at least like right there, like up some stairs. Right. So she she could be missable, but you're unlikely to miss her if you're going slowly. Yeah, especially if you're trying to clear out the enemies and then they start respawning and you're like ah. Exactly, and so then you know then you have all the information you need. So when you hear the bells again before you engage enemies preferably you know to kind of scout the area out as much as you can and try to find them um which is really great i mean that that's kind of a a a confined example of exploration and and very goal focused exploration yeah that those games do really well um i'm sure there are many many examples in other games but I, i can't really think of fantastic examples or at least none that are as purposeful as that like the skulls are purposeful um though optional. way less interesting <laughs> optional and way less yeah. interesting um in bloodborne it's pretty vital that you kill those bell maidens or you're gonna have a very difficult time mm-hmm. unless you're really good at just sprinting <laughs> no i do i do like how they handle sound of the souls games um I'm trying to think like of a of a specific instance. Um, oh, so I guess I mean I guess blood, back in Bloodborne when you're in Yarnum at the start and you go into the to the house that's very dark and you can you can hear things moving around, mm-hmm. right? 
the so creaking you know and there's stuff. something in there and and they, i feel like overall they do a really good job with this like this idea of oh they, they've taken away your your visuals and now they're giving you an audio cue and you're like okay there's something here i need to find it and it's i mean even though you know there's something there, you still you're still surprised. You're, it still gets you. Yeah, I mean, Bloodborne uses audio in the way a horror game would use audio, which is to alert you to danger most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember. Uh, have you ever played I'm Scared? I have not. Okay, it's a. Uh, it was a indie horror game that's like all eight bit style, mm-hmm. and it's horrifying, but. The point is... Oh, well, I don't want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> the point is is that um, there's a section that where you basically play... It's called hide-and-seek, I think, but you're not really mm-hmm. hiding and seeking. You're basically running away from this thing. <laughs> and it uses this kind of uh, pulsing, kind of scratchy sound effect. And mm-hmm. the louder it gets, the closer it is to you, right? And what's brilliant about it is you have to explore the room you're in in order to escape while being chased by this thing. And the, the what's funny about it is, like, exploring basically amounts to, like, looking at the floor for these arrows that you walk over. And as mm-hmm. you walk over them, it kind of, I, feel, I think it, like, unlocks a door eventually or something. But it's this really interesting, like, thing where you have to search out your surroundings while under siege by this kind of slow-moving thing that, mm-hmm. you know, you probably aren't going to see until it's too late. And I, I love the way horror games can do that, right? Because they are very, very exploration-based. You know, you think of, like, the Resident Evil games and stuff like that where you have to find items to solve puzzles. And they're kind of Metroidvania in, in the sense that you have to go back over areas you've been before. Actually, I would say Resident Evil is a great example of a game that, that changes the environment around you as you as you make progress, even though yeah. the areas are, are the same, right? Like. Right. The, if you kill zombies in Resident Evil Remake, they come back as more dangerous zombies later on, and that totally changes how you how you navigate around the world. But uh, my 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 point was that that kind of exploration is really focused on horror games only, like the way that the audio works in tandem with like the environment. I feel like mm-hmm. horror games are have kind of like the the lockup on that market more than they yeah. should. Well, I mean, it's it works very well for them, right? It's like half the game. Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot that's scarier than something you can hear but you can't see, right? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I would say the rewards there. I don't know. I guess escaping alive is the reward, right? That's about as good a reward as you're going to get. Right. I mean, in, in a game like that, definitely. So maybe, 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 Gabe, we've just been looking for... Horror, like how do we how do you make a good horror game all this time we didn't even realize <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i'm 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 pretty happy with the selection of games i've played that have good exploration like i guess i mean now that we've talked about it i realize that it's it's mostly been like 2d games when i think of good exploration but there are so many good 3d games with good exploration and i think that at least for me like having having good, interesting movement capabilities to traverse that world makes an enormous difference. Like, I I think of, you know, Super Mario 64 that I enjoy way more than many games just because of your movement options. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I'm definitely in agreement there. I think I'm kind of split on 2D and 3D exploration. I think, at least right now, I'm, 
I'm more prone to enjoy 3D exploration just because... Yeah. Eh, I'm not really sure why. I think there are more possibilities, right? You referred earlier to Dark Souls verticality. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't, you just can't do that to the same extent in 2D because you just have four directions you can move. Well, you know, I was actually thinking, because um, I've been thinking a lot about exploration in games and like 2D versus 3D. It's much easier to make a 2D game, but at least in my opinion. Um, <laughs> I would but, say that's, uh, that's generally, uh, I would think, regarded as true. <laughs> but you know, 3D 3D games, you do get that extra verticality. And it's funny because Dark Souls is known for this verticality, even though you don't you don't have ways to traverse vertically. You just go up and down things like an elevator or stairs. Whereas compared to like Mario, you you know, tons of verticality you can traverse by jumping. Yeah. But I was I was thinking about I mean I haven't played a link to the past. I think it has something similar, but in a link between worlds, there's specifically this there are a lot of sections where verticality comes into play, but there's specifically one dungeon, the the ice dungeon, where you know going up and down in levels is a really big deal to the point that it's necessary to solve puzzles. And for me, like that was one of my favorite dungeons because it's it's so intricate and so complex. It almost feels like a water temple of its own, just because you have to keep going up and down floors and like finding finding things. And it has that feeling of like exploration in terms of hey i need to figure out how to get up here from down here um and i can't really jump because it's a 2d game on a plane but you can go up and down stairs you can fall down you can do a lot of things and it's it's really cool to see yeah i think a link to the past probably does quote unquote verticality about as well as you can do in in uh, a top-down game at least Mm-hmm. because technically obviously you're not really on separate levels you're just in a different area on a flat plane but you know you label it floor two and you're convinced that's all you need really right yeah you need a little animation a falling animation and a sound effect you label it floor two boom you're done that, that's convincing mm-hmm. enough and i think you know it's surprising how few games do that i mean obviously like a side-scrolling game has up and down as as its core one of its core movements because you're really limited. I feel like side-scrolling is about as limited as you can get in terms of, like, exploring. You could theoretically do kind of a forward and back idea as well, but that's less convincing, I think, to people, and therefore I don't think it's done all that much. I think people are just a lot more willing to just scroll endlessly to the right or to the left or up or down than they are to, like, go through doors that are supposed to then put you in like an adjacent room. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have areas that you're supposed to be able to fall below, like in A Link to the Past, that's a lot more interesting seeming. Even if it's not true verticality, at least it's convincing enough where it makes you feel like it is. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think in that sense, if we're talking about 2D specifically, I think Top Down definitely has a little more to offer in that regard. Yeah, I do too. Um, I'm a fan of top-down games. I mean, I probably because of Hyperlight Drifter, but yeah. I haven't played enough of that to, to get a great feel for it, but there are plenty of games that are similar, right? Um, I would, uh, like, uh, Titan Souls, where you have, like, these big old staircases that you go up and down. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a similar kind of idea. I think there are elevators in that game, too, actually. I honestly don't remember, but... Yes, <laughs> it is a 2D top-down game. So for me, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm kind of between the two, between 3D and 2D, that is. Uh, mm-hmm. I see that both have something kind of unique to offer. There are things you can do in 2D 
uh, that you can't do in 3D, like just present more information to the player at any given time. You just cannot, right. you know, in 3D, you have to physically aim the camera in a direction in order to see what's over there. With 2D, you can just present like, here's the whole floor if you want, you know, if you really wanted to, like in uh, Monaco, right? You see pretty much the whole level. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, the whole level you're in. Right. Yeah. And that kind of has a little bit of pseudo-verticality, too, with, like, the... Eh, not really verticality, yeah, like, I guess. Well, kind of, because you can go through, like, vents and stuff, can't you? Oh, yeah, that's true. The vents are cool. So that kind of is a... Kind of kind of fakes you out and, and makes you feel like there's... There, there are multiple, mm-hmm. level, multiple levels, even though there aren't really. But, yeah, I, I think both definitely have something to offer. So it's nice to, to be able to explore both. Yeah, definitely. Alright, so our conversation into exploration feels a bit like a scratching of the surface, as it's a meaty subject. Near the end, we touch on some interesting elements such as movement and perspective that feel dense enough on their own to warrant a new discussion. Perhaps we'll revisit that in another episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to read more of my thoughts on video games, check them out at jamesebastian.tumblr.com or check out my streams on Twitch. If you'd like to learn more about what Gabe is up to, check him out on Twitter at Mistalice or at his website, gabem.me. Thanks for listening. Quiet.